6. The title today is An Enduring Faith. Um, this is a hard text, and, and I'm excited for it. I hope you're excited for it. Uh, today is Father's Day, and uh, so I do want to tie this in to fathers at certain points, um, but surely this is the most controversial text in the book of Hebrews, and some would say it's the most controversial text in the entire Bible. Um, but that's, that's why we preach verse by verse. That's why we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, what we call expositional preaching, so we don't get to pick and choose the text that we want to preach or avoid the text that we don't want to preach. So as we wait, make our way through books of the Bible, we hit every single text. And what's beautiful about that is we're doing so in context. So we get to understand what came before, what comes after, how does it actually fit, and what does it actually mean. Um, now today, the text addresses the issue of apostasy. So we're going to be talking about people who will walk away from the gospel of Jesus and never, ever come back. Now if, you're, if you've been a part of the church for some period of time, then I know, just like me, you've seen people who've been a part of the church, who've been advocates of the gospel, maybe held positions within the church, and then at some point, have walked away. And not just walked away, but they now reject the gospel. They embrace a lifestyle absolutely uh, in contradiction to what we see in God's word. Um, and the hard and the, and the sad truth is, is that there very likely is someone here that that may happen to. And so we just need to realize that what text we're coming into is, is heavy in many ways, and as we, we're not, I was hoping we're going to get through 4 through 12, but we're not. We're getting through 4 through 8, um, but as we move on into the text, as we move on to more verses, we're going to see the joy that's here and the assurance that we're to have, but this is a weighty text, and we do need to wrestle with the truth that is being presented here. And so it's hard, but it's good. And the purpose of our text is not to simply describe those who will, who will walk away and not come back, but it's to warn us of the threat of apostasy so that all of us would cling to the gospel more tightly. So just as we warn our children, don't run into the road without looking, you know, always look. We warn them to keep them safe. This warning is given to the church so we all cling to the gospel. So we all know who Jesus is. So while it's going to at times make us feel uncomfortable, and maybe you're going to feel like your toes are stepped on, I want to encourage you to press in to that feeling the Holy Spirit's giving and, and move to repentance if needed. And that together as a church, we would love the gospel and that our affections for Christ would increase because of the warning that we're given here today. And specifically, men, I want to, again, just Father's Day. So a couple times, I just kind of want to uh, speak to the men in the room while it's still applicable to all. Um, we need godly men in this church. Your family needs you to be a godly man who shepherds. The world needs more men who love God's word and live out his truths each day day. We live in a world where it's easy, and, and many of you have seen guys, you might be one of these guys where Monday you're within the church, but really Monday or Sunday you are, but Monday through Saturday, your life might very well just look like anybody else's. And, and what we have here in Hebrews chapter 5, which was just before our text, is that the author warns the church, hey, You've been, you've been falling into what we call just lazy Christianity. He says, you become dull of hearing, which if you remember, those words mean you become sluggish in the ears, meaning they're not listening to God's word, they're not paying attention to God's word, they're not growing in God's word. In fact, he says, you now need to be retaught the elementary principles of the faith. And so men, I want to encourage you, let us be men who press into the word every day. Let's be men who grow in godliness. Let's be men who shepherd our wives and our families, who in the church and outside of the church, we declare God's truth and we live 
according to his word, that we would make much of his name. The world, the world wants us to think that, okay, it's okay for you to be a Christian in your house, and really that's it. But don't bring your belief systems into the world. And yet Jesus says you're to be a light in the world. And I want to encourage you that, men, we need men who will shepherd their families and be a light for the sake of your family so that they will not fall in to the warning that we're being given here today. That people, your coworkers, your neighbors will have an accurate understanding of the gospel, that they'll believe the gospel, and that they will not fall into apostasy. We need men and women to cling to the word and that together we exhort one another, encourage one another, so none of us would fall away. And so I just want to encourage you men. Um, many of you are growing in incredible ways, and I just want to encourage all of you to be men of the word, men who love your families, men who shepherd, so that you will not fall prey to this warning that we're given and that you would help your families have assurance of salvation. And so before we dig in this morning, let me just give the quick reminder. The church in Hebrews is struggling in their faith. We see that there's been persecution that's been coming against the church. But the real problem we learned a couple of weeks ago in Hebrews 5 is not the persecution. We're promised persecution. We're promised suffering. We're promised trials all throughout God's word. The problem is the heart condition of the church. Again, they become lazy. They become spiritually immature. A lot of us, we think that we can grow in our faith, and if we, if we pause, if we stop reading God's word, if we stop gathering with the church, we just kind of stay where we're at. But think of more of the Christian life like we're paddling up a river, going upstream, what happens when you stop paddling upstream? You go downstream. You're either progressing or you're regressing. There's no place of neutrality. And so that's what he's wanting us to understand here. And so earlier on in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, hey guys, we need to press on to maturity. No more coasting, no more drifting. We need to pick up our paddles, we need to take God's word, and we need to move forward in our faith. And so he's then going to give us this warning so that we would not fall prey into apostasy. And one of the things he wants us to see is that, and we've said this over and over again, that the way Hebrews wants us to understand salvation is not just to look at salvation as a point in time, as in many years ago I believed in Jesus and I was baptized, but he wants us to see that salvation is not just beginning the race, but it's running the race and finishing the race. He's taking a holistic view of salvation. And so we need to realize that real faith runs the race, and finishes the race. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, where he says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. So real faith perseveres. Real faith runs and finishes the race. And so if with that, I want to encourage you uh, to go ahead and stand. And we're going to read Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, and then we're going to dig in this morning. He says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain and often, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose forsake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Let me pray. Father, Lord, I just pray. I pray for wisdom this morning for me as I preach and for everyone as we just listen. I pray for humility, that none of us would keep this text at arm's length, but we'd eagerly seek to understand it, to know it, to apply it. And I pray, Father, that your spirit would work powerfully in us that we would all grow in our affection and our love towards you. And Lord, where, there, where, there is the, where it is that you place conviction 
upon our heart. I pray we don't resist that. I pray we don't ignore that. But I pray that you move us to repentance and we would joyfully repent, knowing that as we repent, that's evidence of our salvation, evidence of your grace, evidence of your faithfulness to make us more and more like you. And so, Lord, I pray that we as a church would understand this text and that we would run the race of salvation. That not only would we initially believe in you, but we'd believe every single day that you are king and that you are Lord and we would bear fruit to your glory. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the warning. That's what we're going to do first. We're going to look at the warning. And then secondly, we're going to really answer one question. And it's the question that says, how do we not fall into apostasy? How do I know that I'm not on the path to apostasy? So we're going to look at the warning. And then we're going to look at the question. Uh, there's three aspects of the warning I want to bring your attention to first. Number one Notice the severity of the warning. In verses 4 through 6, we read, it's impossible. Impossible for who? Impossible for what? Impossible for those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, and tasted the goodness of the word and powers of the age to come. If they fall away, those who have experienced those things, if they then fall away, it's impossible for them to repent and be restored. He's wanting us to know there is no hope for those who fall into this warning. They cannot be restored. They will not repent. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17, regarding Esau, we read this. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So there, there is a, a strong warning. This is a severe warning. He's saying, look, if you go down this path, you will not come back. So we just need to hear, there's a severity here. Notice the words falling away. That's the Greek parapipto, and what it stands for, apostasy. So the church of Hebrews is tempted to abandon the gospel and go back to Judaism. Christianity was illegal, Judaism was legal. Enough said, right? Like they're, they're wrestling with persecution. It's becoming hard to be a Christian. So they're going, well, if we, if we just go back, may, maybe this whole gospel thing is wrong. Maybe, maybe it's not true. And let's, let's go back to Judaism. But why is it impossible for those who commit this apostasy to repent and be restored? Look at verse 6. It explains, it says, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So what does it mean they're crucifying Jesus again? Well, think about this. To abandon the gospel to join, is to join the Jews who handed Jesus over to the Romans, who then nailed him to the cross. It's to make a mockery of Jesus. It's to say, okay, the blood of bulls and goats is better than the blood of Jesus. We would rather trust in the blood of bulls, in the blood of goats, in the blood of sheep, in all of the Old Testament sacrificial system. We'd rather trust in that than in the blood of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ. So to commit this, this sin, this apostasy, is say, I'd rather have the blood of bulls than to believe in the blood of Jesus Christ. This is why to abandon the gospel and to forsake it is to disgrace the gospel of Jesus. It's to say it is of no worth, it is of no value. It's to say, remember, one of our themes through Hebrews is from shadow to reality. The author continuously holds up the shadows of the Old Testament 
And he says, they were all meant to lead us to Jesus, who is the greater reality. Old Testament priests, the Levitical priests, point us to the greater priesthood of Jesus. Moses leading Israel, or Joshua leading Israel into the promised land points to the far greater Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, who leads us into eternal life. All throughout the Old Testament, we're, all throughout the book of Hebrews, we're seeing how Jesus is greater and better than the shadows that took place in the Old Testament. But to commit this sin is to say, no, I'd rather have the shadow than the reality. This is why in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, we read this. How much more punishment, now think about that, how much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Do you hear it? How much more? Like there will be, hell will be severe for everyone, but we do get the understanding there is severities of punishment that will be experienced for all of eternity. And for those who profane the name of Jesus and rather would go back to Old Testament bulls and goats, he says, how much worse do you think that punishment would be? To commit this sin is to literally become one of the soldiers who nailed Jesus to the cross. So again, there's a severe warning, and we're beginning to see um, what it means to fall away then, exactly what is taking place here. Now, notice there's a pronoun change also. This is, this is really important. All the verses surrounding the pronoun are in second person. They're in we's and you's. When we come to the warning of verses 4 through 8, the pronoun changes to third person, them and they. So what does that mean? Well, this is a warning. He's not actually saying the church has committed apostasy. So what he's doing right now, he's described already kind of the health of the church. In chapter 2, we saw they're drifting away. In chapter 3, he says, do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need to keep encouraging one another, exhorting one another. And in chapter 5, he said, look guys, you become kind of sluggish in the ears. You're not maturing, you're actually regressing. And so he's, he's painting a picture. He says, if you keep on this path, let me, let me tell you what's going to happen to someone that would do that. So now he's describing them, they. And he's like, do you want to become like them? Do you want to become like they? So that's what he's doing here. He's like a lifeguard shouting to children, warning them of a dangerous undercurrent. This author is warning us. He's not saying the church has committed it, but he's saying you're on the path. If you keep going, this is what's going to happen. And we know that he doesn't believe they've committed it yet because if you go down to verse 9, it says, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So he says, look, guys, it doesn't look good. Spiritual health is kind of low at this moment, but I have faith. I really do believe that there is salvation in you and that you guys are going to grow in your faith and you're going to keep maturing. But that doesn't stop him from still giving the warning. The reality is that there are people in the church, they're in danger of falling away. And he sees that. And so we need to wrestle with who are these people being addressed? And this is really where the controversy just kind of wants to explode and everyone has lots of opinions. Um, so let's look at verses four and five. Go back there. And we're just going to make some comments. Notice that he says, it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened. Now, the word enlightened means to have knowledge, to, to come to understanding. At the end of the first century and in, on into the second century, it would, be, it would be used of those who were baptized. Not sure if that's what he's referring to here, but potentially. In chapter 10, verse 32, he will use this word again, enlightened, specifically referring to believers in the church. Tasted the heavenly gift. Now again, at the end of the first century, it would mean uh, this word, tasted the heavenly gift, would refer to those who participate in communion. Is that what he's thinking here? Maybe, maybe not. It seems like he's talking about those who have experienced the benefits of salvation, shared in the Holy Spirit, could refer to laying on of hands or the very fact that uh, they experienced the power of the Spirit. 
tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, that they're seeing the truth, the reality of God's word. They've seen miracles. They've seen wonders. Remember in chapter 2, he says, um, these miracles and wonders that you've seen also testify who Jesus is. So he's saying, if these things are true of you and you commit this sin, there is no restoration. So who are these people being addressed? And so I believe the straightforward answer is the church. He's just simply looking at the church. And he's saying, look, if you say yes to this, then think, think about this warning. No one should neglect this warning. In fact, if you're a believer here, I think every single person, in fact, I might be, be so bold to say every person here might say these words are true of them. Yeah, I feel enlightened. I have the knowledge that it comes in God's word. I've tasted the heavenly gift. I've, I've seen the benefits of salvation. I've participated in communion. I've experienced the Holy Spirit, the working of him. I've seen the power of his word. We've seen God do incredible things. I think everyone here is going to shake their head. Yeah, I've, I've seen that. And I think everyone that's reading this is going to go, okay, yeah, I, I'm, I'm tracking with you. I'm understanding. This is given to the church. He's not trying to qualify he doesn't say look guys there's some people here in the church that this is going to apply to and others it doesn't he just simply places the full weight of the warning on the church everyone wrestle no excuses no holding the text at arm's length so i think that's what he's actually trying to do um, but I know then that we still wrestle with, so, so what does that mean? Can Christians lose their salvation? Can Christians not lose their salvation? All of a sudden, now we, we're back to that text, which I think, Chris, you preached on, I don't know, we'll say a month ago, somewhere around there, um, on really talking about the assurance of our salvation. And so let me give three interpretations of what people often say regarding who this is being applied to. Some, uh, some would say it's a hypothetical situation. It's a warning of a sin that cannot actually be committed. So he's just saying, look, it's impossible for real Christians to ever actually fall away and for any of this to ever happen to. Um, that's an interesting thought. I don't actually know why he would include this warning if that was his purpose. And a warning's not really a warning if there's no teeth, right? Like, if it doesn't matter, like what, like what does that even do for me? Um, imagine telling your child, do not run with scissors because otherwise you'll be sucked into a black hole. And your child's like, I don't think that can actually happen. Like that's not actually going to affect his behavior or his heart, right? We, we need to actually give real consequences, real threats, real warnings. You don't run out into the street or you're going to die. You know, there'll be a car, it will hit you, and you will not live. That's a real warning, and kids can see that. But a hypothetical situation isn't going to change anyone. So I'm not convinced of that type of argument at all. There are those who would say he's actually talking to Christians who have been justified, declared righteous, who have been adopted into the family of God, who have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in their life. And he's saying, these are true Christians, and he's saying you can actually lose your salvation. Um, they would argue, well, we freely chose to believe in Jesus, and so we can freely choose not to believe in Jesus. So often, their argument or the weight of their argument will lie upon the power of what they believe is their free will. This would also be known as an Arminian position. Um, one thing that we always, always, always want to do is when we're looking at a difficult text, is we also want to look at it in light of other texts that are clear. Because we know that God is not a God of contradiction. He's not going to say one thing one place and another thing another place. All of Scripture aligns with his character. It is true. So the problem with true Christians who have truly been justified, declared righteous, losing their salvation, goes against an enormous weight of Scripture. 
which that's what we're going to look at for a few moments right now. And so I'm just going to give you truths and scriptures and read those. And all of the texts I'm about to read or I think put in paragraph form in your uh, worship guide. Number one. Scripture teaches that God will complete the work he began in you, Philippians 1, 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. We should all have confidence. If Jesus saved you, he will keep you saved and finish sanctifying you. Number two, Scripture teaches that nothing will separate us from his love. Romans 8, 38 to 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm not going to hit this much, although I really want to. Those who want to exert the power of their free will will say that their free will would stand outside of all things in creation. He's clearly saying nothing will separate you. And for you to exert your free will over the power of death, life, angels, rulers, and everything else in all creation is a pretty bold, arrogant move. So I don't find that convincing at all. Number three, Scripture teaches that salvation is about being given new life in Christ. Notice the way Paul describes Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So we've gone from death to life. Next one, Scripture teaches that all who have been given the Spirit are sons of God. Galatians 4, 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you're an heir through God. Scripture teaches an unbreakable chain from election to glorification. Romans 8, 29 to 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called, uh, and he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. You see the unbreakable chain? Those who were foreknown were predestined. Those predestined were called. Those called were justified. Those justified are glorified. No subnotes. Next truth. Scripture teaches that believers are kept by the power of God. Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Why? And to present you with blame, present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Scripture teaches that all believers are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Isn't that good news? Like that is good news. You're sealed by the Spirit of God. Next one. Scripture teaches that belief in Christ is eternal. What's the most popular verse in the Bible? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? When does everlasting life start? When you believe in Jesus, not when he returns. Because Jesus is life, he is eternal life. To have the life of Christ in you is to have eternal life when you believe in Christ. Scripture teaches that all who leave the church were not Christians. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued, they would have persevered. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Scripture teaches that all who believe in Jesus will be raised on the last day. John 6, 40. For this is the will of my Father. This is God's will. Now, don't miss those words. This is God's will. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Scripture teaches that Jesus knows his sheep, and nothing can take us from him. John 10, 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given, to me, given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You see that? That assurance we ought to have? You believe in Christ. You're held by Jesus, held by the Father. There's no coming out of that because he loves you. 
You've been adopted. You've been made an heir in the family, sealed by the Spirit, given eternal life. This is all the assurance that we are to have. So, for those who would say, well, true Christians can actually lose their salvation, I find that argument very wanting against a weight of very clear Scripture. So there's the third view. This is the view that I would hold. I believe it's the view that makes sense of all of Scripture and makes sense of Hebrews specifically. This is the apparent Christians. This position says that those who leave the church were not truly believers. Now think about, think about how this fits well within the Old Testament example that we've been given in chapters 3 and 4, where we've already been. In chapters 3 and 4, the author warned us about not being like Israel. Now, why? What did Israel do? Remember, all of Israel was brought out of Egypt. They all witnessed the 12 plagues. 12 plagues? 10 plagues. We can add a few. They all, uh, they all witnessed the power of God going through the Red Sea. They all partook of manna that God gave them. They all saw the mountain shake and tremble at the very presence of God at the giving of the Ten Commandments. They saw miracle and power of God over and over and over again. And Joshua and Caleb are the only ones who went into the promised land. Not all of Israel is Israel. That's what Paul will say in Romans 9-6. Everyone experienced these things. Everyone would say, yes, we are part of God's people. Everyone would say, yeah, I've been enlightened. I've seen God work. Everyone would say, yeah, we've seen the power of the Holy Spirit. We've seen his pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. Everyone would say, yes, we've tasted the goodness of God. We've seen the power of his word, his miracles and wonders. Everyone in Israel is going to say that. Two entered the promised land. That happens right before we come to this text. And in chapter 3, remember, in chapter uh, 3, verse 14, it says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. One of the primary things, again, the author wants us to see, real faith perseveres. Real faith doesn't just begin the race, but it runs the race, and it finishes the race. So he's looking at the church right now, He's just applying it to everyone. He's not qualifying it. And I think it's a danger if we just try to qualify it because then we're trying to find out reasons why this text doesn't need to apply to us. But he's wanting everyone to feel the weight of this warning. And he's wanting to remind us, look, we must persevere. Don't you remember not all of Israel entered the promised land? They didn't enter God's rest. Let us run the race so that we will will enter God's rest. This also fits well with other New Testament passages. We already read one, 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. There's many people that were all a part of the church in, in, that John writes to in 1 John. And everyone would have said, we're all, we're all in this. We're all Christians. We're all believers. But it was only because some didn't keep running the race that it became evident that they didn't actually have real faith. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, we read this, For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now Demas, in the book of Colossians, and Philemon is commended by Paul, and he's... um, He's, his name is in the name where he's greeting people and he's uh, mentioning other believers. But now at the end of his life, Demas has not kept running the race. He's abandoned the race and he's walked away. Now, we all need to wrestle with this warning. Again, the most dangerous thing I think we can do is to think that this does not bear on me. It, it's dangerous to say just simply, well, I'm a Christian, so I know I, know I don't have to to think about this. I think he writes it the way he does so we don't say that. Remember, going back to the way the author describes us, being enlightened and tasted, experiencing God's word and his power. Um, I've known people, some of you know people who have been in the church and that appear to have amazing gifts. I've known people who have preached the gospel better than I think almost anyone preaches the gospel. 
I've known people who have led music in powerful ways. I've known people who are passionate about the gospel. And everyone would affirm, that guy's a believer. I know he's a believer. And I've known those people who have now walked away from the church. They've abandoned Christianity. They now would declare themselves atheists, and they live a completely abhorrent life to the gospel. I've seen those people. And it's only by actually seeing them that this truth, that this text becomes a reality and that we begin to really understand the weight of it. Because I would have wholeheartedly with anyone else said, no, this guy, this guy's a believer. I baptized some of these guys. Have you known these people? I mean, it's a sad reality that we have here. You might be a Christian for five years, 10 years, 30 years, 50 years. Do not neglect this warning. We're all to feel the weight. And again, I told you in the beginning, it's a hard text. It makes you feel uncomfortable. Toes get stepped on. We're to, we're to feel it. These are people in the church who had been baptized, who would have served, who would affirm Jesus is king. But in reality, they do not believe the gospel. Listen, you do not inherit salvation. Like if your parents are Christians, great. That doesn't make you a Christian. There's no Christian gene doesn't happen salvation is not inherited this is why we preach the gospel here every single week every week we present the gospel the truth of jesus because for one we need to be reminded of it every single time and because there's the truth that there are people in the church who do not believe and yet we think they all believe and and you might be here today and you might go no i'm surely i'm a christian why would i think that i'm not a christian our job is not to try to determine those who have committed this sin. Let me say that also. That's not our role. We don't ever know who's committed this sin. Think, think about Peter. Peter denied Jesus basically to his face three times. <laughs> like not just once, not twice, three times, one night. I don't even know the guy. I mean, if anyone's going to commit it, like we're going to think Peter is, right? And yet... Jesus gives grace, and Peter comes back, and he believes, and yet Judas, Judas walked with the 12. Remember, remember at the Last Supper, when Jesus is like, one of you is going to betray me, everyone's like, who's he talking about? They have no idea he's talking about Judas, because they're all sitting there going, we're all in, like, we're good. I'd vouch for every single one here, is what they're thinking, and yet Judas is the one who does it. And only later do they find out that he was the one who rejected Jesus. They didn't understand it right then. They didn't see it. Our job is not to determine who has committed apostasy. Our job is, though, to come alongside every believer and make sure we don't fall into this. I was listening to a passage this last week. I was kind of, I was wrestling with the outline of this and, and how do I go about this? So I was like, you know, let's see just how some other guys. So I went to YouTube <laughs> that's like never the place to go but I was like you know let's see what we can do it's a good pastoral tip yeah just go to YouTube you'll get all your answers so I listened to several sermons some just ticked me off I mean there's like you're like this is crazy this isn't even wrong um one guy he was a pastor and I was tracking with a lot of what he said but then he says at one point he's like look I'm not responsible for any one of you I have to just keep track of my own salvation. You all got to figure this out on your own. And so at that moment, I was like, stupid. And I hit pause and I turned it off. I was like, that is ridiculous because Hebrews 3.13 says, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why? So you don't fall into this. Our job is one another. My job is to look after you. Your job is to look after me. Together, we're looking at every single one of us. That's why we make such a big deal out of church membership. People come down. We sign papers. We make covenants. So that we, we say, look, we're in this together, and I need your eyes on me because, because sin is deceiving. 
James chapter 5 says this, my brothers, if, any, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, praise God, there's people who bring him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Isn't that good news? That's the role of the Christian. That's the role, not of just the pastor, but every single believer. Yes, we are responsible for one another. So in case you thought we weren't, we are. So maybe you're sitting there going, though, did I commit this sin? Have I, have I done this? Look, I, I want to encourage you. If, you've, if you're wrestling with that, repent. If you repent, I promise you, you have not committed this sin. I encourage you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and confess whatever that sin is. And you have not committed this sin. It's the ones who don't repent. It's the ones who are unable to repent who have done this. Now, Honestly, I, I don't think there's any one of us who are ready to commit the sin that the first century church is doing on going back to Judaism. I don't think that's our problem. I don't think anyone's here is being tempted to go to the sacrifice, sacrificing of blood of the goats and bulls for their blood. Pretty sure no one practices that at home. If you do, we, we don't want to know. Um, like, like don't, don't tell Chris, not me. I don't, I don't know. You got a few more years on me on pastoral wisdom, so I'll let you handle that one. But, but we all do wrestle. And some of us might be sluggish in the ears lately. Some of us might be wrestling with certain sins. We might be wrestling with culture and God's word. And is the Bible really true? We're wrestling with, is there really just male, female? Like, can, can we be so bold to say that? Is the Bible wrong about that Jesus is the only way to heaven? I mean, can we be so bold to say that? Can't there be other ways? Maybe you're wrestling with those kind of things. Um, so we might not be on the exact path the church in the first century is on. But we're being tempted by sin every day. Every day we're being tempted by sin. And Satan would love nothing more than for you to walk away from the gospel. Um, one thing that I've noticed is that those who leave the church, and I don't know if they actually commit apostasy or not, but just those who leave the church, oftentimes great pain is accompanying that leaving. They've gone through pain, maybe physical, but often it's emotional. It's emotional pain, whether it's been with loved ones, whether it's been um, with people they know in the church or outside the church, whether it's a whether they're the subject of that pain or they have relatives in that pain. So I, I want to encourage you, if, if you're wrestling with pain and suffering, one of the things we're got, we need to press in on one another. And if you know someone who's wrestling with pain and suffering, we don't watch them at arm's length. We move towards them. We have to move towards them. Because Satan would love to twist that pain, love to twist that suffering that we're going through and thinking God doesn't love you. He is evil. He is wrong. But if we go to books like James and so many other books in the Bible, we read God's using it for your good. He's using it for your glory. He's using it so you grow in your affection towards him. So we need to kind of come alongside one another. And so we've looked at the warning and that we're all to wrestle with it. So the question that I think we can ask, though, is, is how do we know that we're not on this path? Or how do we keep from going on this path? And so next week, we're going to look at more means of assurance. But this week, I just want to look at one reason, one question that if we answer this right, we know that we're not on the path. And the question is, what am I producing? And the reason I, I, I phrase it like that is look at verses seven to eight. Verses seven through eight is the illustration the author gives to help us better understand the warning. And we can thank him that he gives us this illustration because it makes it much more understandable. Um, now, this illustration, we'll look at it in a moment, is very similar to the parable of the soils that, God, that Jesus gives in Matthew 13. So I encourage you, go read Matthew 13 later. The parable the parable of the soils basically describes four people. There's a guy who's, who's throwing out the seed. It's often depicted as God or Jesus. Um, and he, he's throwing out the seed. And it's going to land on four different types of soils. The soils represent people. Three of the soils ultimately will reject Jesus. Some of them might initially believe, looks like they're in, but ultimately they will not 
persevere and endure, they reject. And then there's the good soil. That's the one that produces fruit. So you boil that all down from four soils. You really only have two responses, though. You have the one who will believe and endure, and you have the one who will not endure and not believe. There's really only two soils. And when we come to this um, illustration, he just goes with two soils. He's just looking at two. And so if you look at verse 7, it says that, we, that both that there's two lands in verses 7 and 8. Both receive rain, and this is what we read in verse 7. But one of them produces a crop useful to those whose forsake it is cultivated. This land is blessed by God. But then there's this other land. It also produces things. It produces thorns and thistles, and thus it's called worthless, and it's going to be, just be burned. So you have two lands. Both receive the word. Both of them receive the rain, the blessings of God. One of them believes and produces a crop useful to people. One of it does not. And this one will be judged and burned, and this one will be blessed. So how do you know if you're on the road to apostasy? How do we avoid falling into this? How do we know that we're saved? One question we ask is, what are you producing? What are you bearing? Are you bearing fruit for the kingdom of God? Or are you bearing thorns and thistles? So you got to wrestle with that. That's how he wants us to wrestle. So he's applying this warning to the entire church so that then none of them would say, oh, that's not me. But we would say, what am I producing? Is there evidence of my faith? And notice how verse 7 describes the fruit of the good land. It's useful to others. And I love this. In fact, I, this is becoming quickly one of my favorite verses. It's useful to others. Are you serving? How are you serving the church? How are you loving your family? Men, how are you shepherding your family in the gospel? Wives, how are you demonstrating the gospel and loving your family with the love of Christ? How are you building up those at work or in your neighborhood? See, we can't just answer and say, oh yeah, I produce fruit. I'm good. But he says, who's benefiting from your faith? You get it? I love this. It automatically says, is your faith tangible? Is it being evidenced by others? Sure, you might say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm really growing. Cool, let me talk to your wife. Let me talk to your husband. You know we get the real scoop there, right? Like, is there evidence of his salvation? Does his faith affect you for good? Does your faith affect the church for good? And, and real quick, even as you listen, you can be affecting others by the way that you listen. But how are you, being a member of this church, and your faith affecting others for good. We need to wrestle with That's what he wants us to wrestle with. How? I love, look at verse 7. A crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. So that could be the church, that can be your family, that can be your neighbors, your coworkers. Who's benefiting from your faith? I love this. It automatically makes me not just look at myself, but I have to look at others and say, Am I, am I sharing the gospel? Am I growing in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience? Am I displaying those with others? Does my wife love Jesus more now because of my faith, or is she moving away from Jesus? How are we affecting those around us for the sake of the gospel? Salvation is not just simply a get-out-of-jail-free card. And you might say, well, well, how does this line up with all this assurance of our salvation that we read about? Yeah, real faith perseveres and bears fruit. There is no reason anyone should think, I'm a Christian if there's no fruit. James makes that very clear. Real faith produces works. Andrew Murray said it this way. He said, my assurance of salvation is not something I can carry with me as a railway ticket or a banknote to be used as occasion calls. My assurance of salvation is alone to be found in the living fellowship with the living Jesus in love and obedience. I love that. Living fellowship with the living Jesus in love and obedience. He's wanting the church to say, look, you've been backsliding. We need to, we need to press in now. We need to mature. And one of the ways we know we're maturing is if we're producing fruit and others are benefiting. So that's how I, I want us to wrestle with that. I've wrestled with that now just this week. 
He writes us so that we would have assurance. There's definitely a warning, but he wants us to have assurance. Are you saved? Is there fruit? If not, okay, repent. Repent and believe in Jesus that there would be fruit, that your life would be a light in this world. Others would see it and be drawn also to the gospel of Jesus. I want to close just by um, mentioned it earlier today. Susan, Susan, who was a member here for, for years, she passed away and we did her memorial service this last week. Um, it, was, it was a good service. It was, just, it was good just being with family. And, and if you know Susan, I mean, you, you got lots of stories and lots of fun things. Um, she came and she wasn't a believer. She thought she was. I remember she gave me this long story of how she thought she was a Christian when she first came five-ish, six years ago, something like that. Um, but she wasn't a believer. And when you talk to her, she didn't really understand the gospel at all, but she was intrigued by God. And, and if you knew her from the very beginning, I said this, uh, I said, she kind of came across like 60 grit sandpaper. Like she was, she was straightforward and direct. And I, I, I relate well to that for good and for worse at times. We're like just sometimes just straightforward and, and sometimes just rough. And she was pretty rough. But what was awesome is that as she came, and there's stories that I have, and I'm sure many of you have, of how you could just sell. She came to believe in Jesus, and she was experiencing what the, what the children are learning downstairs, that sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus, and she became softer and softer and softer. She went from 60 to 120 to 180 to 220, just became softer and softer for the gospel, and she hungered for Jesus, and that's the picture that we're, we're to all have. I mean, it was, in one sense, her message uh, that, that I preached um, at the service was incredibly easy to write because there was so much evidence of salvation and there was so much wrestling that she had done. So it was a joy, but it was an easy one to write. Like, There's so much just to pull from in her life. It was a joy to be able to do that. Um, and that's, that's to be our lives. And so I just want to encourage you, um, how are you growing in your faith? How are, how's your family being affected by your faith? Your wife, your husband, um, your workers. And that doesn't mean that we're the ones who bring them to Jesus at all, right? So don't, don't gauge it on that, but how are we just affecting others? How are we building up the church because of the gifts that we've been given? Um, I'm going to pray, and the men are going to come forward, and they're going to uh, begin directing you towards communion. All the communion is up front, so they'll dismiss you row by row, um, and then they'll take it in the side room also. Let me pray. Father, <clears throat> Father, we praise you. You are good and you are holy. <laughs> and I thank you that we have <clears throat> that we have this text today to wrestle with. And I pray that it moves all of us closer to the gospel, that all of our faith would be increased, all of our affections would be stirred and they would grow. And that we would truly desire to build one another up. God, thank you for your gift of the Spirit. Thank you for salvation. Thank you that we are saved by grace. And thank you for the grace that you give us that we run the race. In your name, Jesus, amen.